I'm Alex, and I'm a second year, and I'll be reading from uh, Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel. Uh, camping in the land and destroying crops as far as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes uh, coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starva starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When I cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to, Is to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in e Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must, worship the you must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live now, but you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat uh, beneath a great tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are the miracles uh, our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I reach Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Uh, don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you, he answered. I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home, cooked a young goat with a basket of flour he baked some bread without yeast, then carrying the meat in a basket and with uh, broth in a pot, he brought them out of. Uh, he brought them out and presented them to the angel, who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, "Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock, and pour the broth over it." Gideon did as he told. Then the, an then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand, and fire flamed up from the rock, consumed all he had brought in the and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. Then Gideon said to God, If you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel, as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put wool fleece uh, on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is 
wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as promised. And that's just what happened. When Gideon got up early in the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out, the whole, about, uh, wrung out a whole bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we're going to talk about what Alex just read in Judges 6, and actually next week as well. Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 are all one big happy story. The two things we will zero in on in this particular passage is this. First, what is regret as opposed to repentance? So regret versus repentance. How are the two different? And then seeking signs versus seeking the sign that God has given us. Well, I want to jump right into this because there's a lot for us to talk about. So this is uh, the story of a man named Gideon and the same people we've been talking about for four or five weeks now, the Israelites. And the first line in this story is the first line of every story in the book of Judges. And the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What literally it says is they did the evil. They did the evil again. They did the deed again. They did it again, which is to say this is becoming characteristic. They were becoming known for this. It was the same pile of vomit that the dog kept returning to every time. The same pattern, the same cycle, the same stuff they kept going back to after that short-lived, we're going to do better this time, Lord, wear it off. But this is always the destination once that wears off. This is home base for the Israelites, the evil that they did in the sight of the Lord. Um, So God does what we've seen him doing a lot in the book of Judges. We've talked about it a lot. I won't spend a ton of time on it, but he hands them over to the Midianites. He's using the surrounding nations to not to abandon his people or destroy his people in their rebellion and their hard heartedness, but to discipline his people. God's trying to soften the hearts of his people. And he's using the tools of these surrounding nations and militaries to do it. And so the Midianites go about oppressing and dominating a people differently than everybody else. They were, all the other people uh, were military oppressors, um, which is bad because they take all your land and stuff, but they kind of leave you alone because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of money to like govern hundreds of thousands of people. So they kind of take your stuff and they just say, okay, now you're an Amalekite, but you do you and we'll stay over here. Just obey us. The Midianites were different. They would come through uh, once or twice a year, right around harvest time, and they would take all the food, all the crops from the Israelites. So it was like an economic oppression. They were cutting off the food supply. Now, remember, Israel's an agrarian society, agriculture. Everybody grows crops. That's what you do. And so imagine this. Some of you come from farming backgrounds or your parents, uh, whatever, have some crop that your family... uh, is in that industry. Imagine in October, uh, somebody comes in a hailstorm or bugs, or in this case, an opposing army, the Midianites come in and in the course of a few days or a few weeks, undo what took 10 months to produce. You were out there in the fields in February, plowing that hard desiccated soil. You were the one out there planting seeds. You were the one waiting day 
after day after day for that little sprout to come up. You were the one who pruned them. You were the one who fertilized them. You were the one who protected them from bugs and other diseases and threats. And after that whole process was done and your crop was on the vine or on the plant ready to be picked, this army rushes in seven years in a row, every October. This is your Halloween celebration now. And you and your family escape up into the caves, up into the hills with only your clothes on your back. Ten months of work down the drain over and over again, seven times over. And so the Israelites cry out to the Lord, right? We talked about this too. In their distress, their misery, they cry out to the Lord. Um, And so, uh, and God answers their cry, but differently than in the past. Every other time that we've seen so far, I think three times, when the Israelites cry out to the Lord because of this oppression, the misery that they're in, God sends a judge, which is what the book is named for, which we've said is, means a deliverer, a savior, a redeemer, a liberator, kind of a military hero. But in this situation, he doesn't send a judge. Did you pick up on that? What he says he sent in verse 8 is the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. There's a guy, Ralph Davis, I quote him almost every week here. He's been uh, one of the key people helping me understand the book of Judges. He said, um, this would be like if you're stranded on the side of the road and you call AAA to get a tow and AAA sends a philosopher and you're sitting by the side of the road stranded on it and you're like, wait, who are you again? I'm a doctor, philosopher. You're like, so how, what does that have to do with my broken down car? How are you going to help me? This is of no help at all. Israel is militarily oppressed, economically oppressed. They are starving. Famine is setting in. They're crying out to God to deliver them from oppression and famine. And God sends a pastor, someone like me. And they're like, how in the world is this guy helpful? How is this what we need? And little side note, can't you relate? In in our moments of distress, our moments of misery, we have a very clear idea of what we think we need from God and what we want from him. And he sometimes seems to send the most irrelevant provisions or answers to prayer. You're like, excuse me, I mean this in all due respect, but did you hear me? Did, I mean, did someone else's prayer request get mixed up with mine? Because I asked for, I needed an easier junior year and I got a really hard roommate that now I want to move out from. What's up with that? You get what seems to be an irrelevant provision or answer to what you had as a very specific request. And so Israel wants a military hero. Israel gets a prophet. And so uh, why though? Why a priest this time? Why a prophet? Why a pastor? Why a sermon? Instead of just, you know, a tent peg through the temple or a dagger through the belly. Why a sermon this time? Well, it's because uh, sin and idolatry, which we've been talking about, they blind us to the ways we get into the misery that we find ourselves in. So uh, you choose to worship creation. You choose to worship created things. Uh, it will produce misery because you were not as a human being designed to thrive and survive by giving your soul and your life and your dreams and your hopes and your security away to, to stuff, to things. It's not compatible with your humanity. And so misery results. 
Uh, distress results, hollowness results, aimlessness results. And we want to get out of it. But the nature of idolatry, the nature of sin itself is the first thing it does is it blinds you. The first dose of medicine sin gives you is Novocaine so that you don't feel any of its other effects. It's why numbness is always a correlate, uh, always accompanies our kind of giving ourselves over to these rebellions. And so God in his kindness to Israel and to us sends a prophet, sends a pastor to connect the dots for his people of cause and effect. Um, I know you've sat with people. I've sat with them too. And I've been the guy who sat there and bemoaned um, how God just isn't showing up in my life. I just feel like he's been really distant lately. And it's all barbed. It's kind of, there's hooks in that language of like, it's his fault. He's not showing up and, and doing what he said he was going to do, doing what he's supposed to do. And then I or that other person would talk longer and longer. And you actually, you start to hear more of their story come out. And you find out that they're like drunk at every party. They've completely given themselves over to living two lives, not just one. And in this moment, Gideon is doing that to the Israelites. And he's saying, tap, tap, tap. Not in, not in shame, not in ridicule, not in patronizing tone, but in a genuine priestly desire to help, he taps and he says, hey, do you think there could possibly be a connection between your rampant hypocrisy of, of t- saying the most beautiful orthodox things about God and nothing in your life matches any of that? Do you think there could be a connection between the hypocrisy and the you know, Psalm 1, feeling like a leaf blown around in the wind. You have no roots. You have no core. You have no weight to yourself. Do you think there could be a connection? And you say, oh, well, come to think of it, I hadn't thought about that, but maybe that's the reason God feels so far away, is I'm so far away. Maybe this is the result of months and months or years and years of giving him the Herschel Walker arm. Get out of my way. I want my space. That's what Gideon is doing to Israel. And he's also doing something more than that. He's also saying, isn't actually, isn't God your only hope out of this distress and out of this misery? He clarifies not just how they got into the situation they got into, but how to get out. God's not your enemy here. He didn't put you in this. He hasn't abandoned you. He's not not showing up. My presence with you, my, this, this sermon, Gideon says to Israel, is the mark of his presence. It's the mark of his pursuit of you. But will you reject it again? Will you, will you dismiss another sermon, another message, another small group, another nudge from the spirit? Will you turn the volume down yet again? That's the message that God sends Gideon to Israel with. It's recorded in verse 7 through 10 right there. I'll let you read it on your own. But he, he's recounting both redemption and he's recounting why they're in the situation. Redemption, I delivered you out of Egypt. I saw you hurting. I saw you stuck. And I heard and I reacted. I responded. I did exactly what you needed and then some. And then how you got into the situation. You don't listen to me is the end of Gideon's little sermon. But you have not listened to the Lord. Why is Gideon having to have this conversation with Israel? Why, you know, I would say, why am I having to have it with you? But I had to have it with myself before I brought this to you. 
Because I stand under this message and under this word too. Why do we have to have this conversation? Having to preach before God delivers. Don't they feel bad already enough? They're starving. They're hiding in caves. Don't they feel bad enough already? Well, that's just the problem. Is feeling bad, regret, wanting a mulligan is not repentance. Oops, I did it again is not repentance. And so though Israel was just rampant with that stuff, Israel had that in spades. Israel had the, I'm sorry, they had that in spades. So a lot of times we have that in spades. But the problem with regret, the problem with just feeling bad about the consequences of our rebellion is that it is only skin deep. It's a lot of promises and no follow through because it's only skin deep. It's a reaction to the misery of rebellion against God. There's an attempt to change, but only so that the misery, the bad stuff will go away. As soon as you feel good again, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? I mean, we're all experts in this. As soon as the misery is gone, the the desire to change, the desire for God is gone too. So it's a process. Regret is a process driven by selfishness. I don't want to feel icky anymore. Make me feel good again. It's very transactional. has nothing to do with God. has everything to do with you. has nothing to do with other people. just has to do with me. Repentance, on the other hand, is heart deep. Not skin deep. It's heart deep. It's all the way to the core of who you are. Your motivational core. Your loves. Your hates. It strikes all the way deep down in there. And it's not a reaction just to the misery of the consequences of our sin, but to the relational impact that our rebellion has done, primarily to God. Repentance is this beautifully repersonalizing force. It puts an address on our rebellion. It puts a name to it. It puts a body count to it and says, this is how this has impacted God. This is how this has impacted your mom. This is how this has impacted you. This is how this has impacted your roommates. All of a sudden, what was all about you is now about other people, and it's about God. And this does lead to change because it, what repentance does is it connects you back. It restores your sight of God, and God changes. God blesses. Repentance is a gift, but he also blesses the gift that he gives to us. Tim Keller compared and contrasted the two this way. He said, regret is all about us, how I'm being hurt, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking. But repentance is all about God, how he has been grieved, how his nature as creator and redeemer is being trampled on, how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized and used manipulatively. That's the difference in regret and repentance, merely feeling bad and not wanting to feel bad again versus for the first time again, the fog lifts and you see the God who was always behind it all that we were running from and hurting. So Israel's distraught. Israel's the first. They're just feeling bad. We've never really detected in this book, true repentance, just uncle, stop twisting my arm, make it stop. So they cry out for a miracle and a dramatic delivery and God sends a sermon or a Bible study lesson. No parting skies, just a conversation. He sends Gideon to bump them from regret to repentance to kind of nudge that trajectory towards a different destination. 
the way he does with us too. But note this, Israel does not respond the right way. Israel doesn't appear to be bumped towards repentance. You don't see a true kind of a a ripping of their heart, godly sorrow. You don't see that. Um, But you, you do see God and get God through his kind of his man, his prophet Gideon, beginning to take steps forward in delivering his people. Hear that. Israel didn't do anything and God is still moving. He's still redeeming. He's still delivering. If you and I were left up to the quality or quantity or frequency or genuineness of our repentance, all of us never would have left square one. You need the spirit of Jesus to give you the gift and the power and the energy of repentance. We hoist that sail, but we need him to blow the wind into it. We confess, we acknowledge with to him. We name our rebellions. We grieve them. We lament them. We call out for his mercy, but we need him to blow in that sail to move us forward. And that is just what he does. Um, I probably talk about this verse every other week, but I think it's so critical to a true understanding of the gospel. And I think if you miss this, all you're left with is powerless religion where you have to supply all the energy to it. But Romans 2, 4 gets the order right. Paul says, don't you know that God's kindness, patience, and forbearance are designed to lead you to repentance? What came first? Your repentance or his patience and kindness? His redemptive work on your behalf. That came first. And it's meant to soften you. It's meant to prick you. It's meant to wake you up. It's meant to repersonalize you and to draw you back. Romans 5, 6, Paul says it again in a different place. While you were still weak, still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your hope is that God moves first. And then he will again. Your hope in this life is never your own follow through, your own self-starting, your own diligence, your own discipline. It's his discipline, his initiative, his follow through. And so Gideon and the angel talk after he delivers his little message to Israel and Israel doesn't really do much. But God and his man, God through the angel is talking to Gideon through his messenger And in this, you see some other things in Gideon's mind start to come out. So Gideon is like the preacher who's he's given his sermon and on his drive home that night, his mind is racing and he's losing sleep at night wondering, but wait a second. You know, I know what I just preached. I said that God delivered his people from the Egyptians. I said he was always with them. But in the back of his mind, he's wondering, but if he is with us, why is all this stuff happening? Seven years We're seeing little boys and girls suffer famine. We're having to hide in the hills. It's not getting better. If God really is with us, why are these terrible circumstances happening? Where are the miracles that our ancestors saw, he says, in the middle part of the passage? That's how you proved your commitment to them, but I don't see any of that around me right now, Lord. So are you committed to us or are you not? He actually concludes God has abandoned his people. This promise-making God has broken his promise. He's left his people high and dry. He's saying, the way I see things right now, there's not a lot of evidence stacking up that God is with us. 
And here's the thing about this. God's people ask this question all the time. I'd say it's probably the top question in the entire Old Testament. God, what are you doing? But it has a little edge to it. You're doing something wrong. What are you doing, Lord? Where are you? So God's people ask this question a lot. And those people who don't belong to the Lord and don't believe him, don't believe the Bible, reject Christianity, also ask this question a lot. Many have left the faith because of this. Many struggle with the faith because of this. Many reject the faith because of this. And all of us agonize over that question of, Lord, if you really love me, why is this stuff happening to me? Whatever it is for you. And the question that lingers over our head, and maybe it's not a question in your mind anymore, maybe it's been answered, but we ask, have you abandoned me? Is that the right interpretation of what's happening? Let me tell you some good news. The good news is this. Thinking that God has abandoned you is, in every case except for one, a result of a lack of perspective. Thinking that God has abandoned you uh, is always, for us, the result of a myopic, narrow perspective. God will pull the curtains back soon enough for Gideon, and Gideon will no longer be wondering if God is committed to him, to Israel. But it took time, right? Gideon had to lean into some things and live through some things, and then God clarified Gideon to the contrary. Not only did I not abandon you, but through the very circumstances, the very evidence you pointed to that you said proved I was against you, those very pieces of evidence are actually evidence to the contrary. You thought because Israel was being oppressed, because your life was hard, because you were suffering seven years deep and it wasn't getting better, you thought that proved I'm against you. That was actually the proof of my commitment to you to soften you and to draw you back to myself. I said in every case but one because Jesus himself, God in the flesh can resonate, understands and can empathize with the question God, have you abandoned me? Lord, if you really love me, why is this happening to me? This is, this is amazing. It's mind-blowing that your God, through Jesus, can actually empathize with the, with the emotion, with the angst, the agony behind that question. My circumstances don't fit your promises. So God can both empathize with this question And I think that's why he is actually pretty compassionate in his response to Gideon. You would think that God would be ready with a backhand, a crow hop, and just smacks Gideon across the face and knocks him down a few rungs and says, who are you to think that I've abandoned you? You've abandoned me. That's not what he does. Do you see what he does? Did you pick it up? Did you read it? God's reaction to this accusation that you've broken your covenant, you've broken your promise, the rubber band where we've been talking about this stretchy covenantal love, it's snapped. We outsend the grace of God. His response to that is to say, I am with you. I am with you. Gideon, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to deliver my people through you. I'm sending you. 
I said the second thing we would talk about is not just regret versus repentance, but seeking signs versus seeking the sign. And it's precisely this reassurance, God kind of wrestling through this angel, wrestling with Gideon with all these promises. He says it multiple times. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Gideon, I'm going to be with you and for you. I'm sending you. You're my man. You fighting the Midianites is going to be like you fighting one person. It's going to be that easy. And it's specifically that reassurance, that gospel reassurance that Gideon is so uncertain about. He hears the words and he's processing the information, but his response is kind of like, I know you've said this, Lord, but I know you promised this, but can I get a sign? Will you prove it to me? Will you show me you mean it? And that's the pattern that carries throughout this. There's three times, verse 17, verse 36, verse 39, and other places in the passage, Gideon is saying, I know you said this, but would you show me, would you prove a sign? And so there's a big question here for us. What does this mean for us, by the way? Like, that's the big question, I guess. What does this mean for you and I as we try to discern God's, will for our lives, but also his work for our lives. As we participate in his work in the world, as we participate in building his kingdom, what does this mean for us as we try to discern, are you leading me this way or this way? Are you really going to follow through? Do you really mean what you've said? There's a question you should always ask when you read the Bible. Doesn't matter if it's New Testament or Old Testament, a book you understand or a book you don't. And the question is this, is this episode or story in the Bible descriptive or prescriptive? Is it merely naming something that happened in this particular instance or is it norming what happened in this particular instance? Is it merely describing what happened with Gideon, his unique situation, or is it saying, and, and go and do likewise? This is the way it will be for you every time you make a decision. Is it describing or prescribing? Is it naming or is it norming? Is the big question we have to ask when we pick up our Bibles and in this particular uh, situation, I guess we could put a finer point on it in saying, should you seek signs from God, proof and evidence of his presence with you? I got to give a little tiny caveat before I answer that question. Gideon's situation is different than ours. So there's a little bit of describing and naming going on here. Gideon's situation is different. Gideon doesn't have a Bible like you and I do, Right? Whatever existed, the scriptures was passed down through oral history, and he didn't have much at that point in history. So Gideon didn't have something like this that God himself says is my word. You ask me a question or I ask you a question, we can go here and you can take every word I say up here every week and you can cross check it against this and said, Ben said something different than this. That was not the word of God. Gideon didn't have that. And what's unique is God is directly talking to Gideon. He's directly revealing his word in real time to this prophet Gideon. And that's not something he does to us. He speaks to us through his word. When his word wasn't there, his word came directly to Gideon. And so we got to appreciate the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of Gideon's situation before we rush off and say, well, I'm going to go lay out a fleece tonight and see if it's wet in the morning. Tonight would be a great night to do that. Lord, please show me what you want me to do. What major? Is it wet? Yes. 
I have, throughout my entire life, been a diligent, frenzied, panic sign seeker. Have you? Lord, give me a sign. I did it with my major. I was that undeclared guy until the last possible minute at the end of sophomore year, and I had to pick. And then I ended up switching that, like, two months later. Oh, my goodness, in dating, before dating, during dating, after dating, engagement, all of this stuff, I'm like, Lord, give me a sign. Is now the time to ask her out? Am I called to singleness? What should I do? Do we move forward? Do we not? Do we get engaged? Do we get married? Lord, I need a sign. My job, my goodness. What, what have you put me on this worth to do? Give me a sign. Should I confront this roommate or would it damage our relationship? Lord, give me a sign. Should I go on this spring break trip or not? Lord, give me a sign. Everything I'm about to say, please remember that the man who's telling you this has done it all wrong all along. People in our day, unlike Gideon in his moment, need to be very careful with our seeking and searching for signs. I think there's a little bit of this going on in Gideon. I think Gideon is a little bit more vindicated in seeking for a sign for the reasons that I've said. He's directly talking to God. But I think, I think there's still something in his heart that's saying, Lord, I know you said, I know you promised, but I need some evidence. I need proof. And here's the problem with that. That's what you do with strangers, right? Like you and your landlord signed a contract because you don't know him or her, and they don't think you're good for the money. Or your student loans, they don't just say, hey, you need $40,000. Awesome. Please pay it back in the next 10 years. They say, what's your mom and your dad's name and address and phone number? What's their social security number? I want bank account numbers. I want house value. How many cars do they have? They want all the details. They want proof and evidence that you're going to just simply do what you said you would do. Pay the money back. There's something in that in our hearts seeking for signs is, Lord, I know you have said, I know you have exhaustively introduced yourself to me. You've shown yourself in the lives of real people in real situation, how you react and respond. I know that, but I would like a sign for myself, specific, customized. I want you to prove it. Friends, we do that to strangers we do not trust. Do you see that? We do that to people we don't think are going to pay up. We don't think are going to come through or follow through. If friends get to a point where they're having to sign contracts with each other, something bad has happened in the relationship, right? I think there's something of that in Gideon's heart, although I do think it's a mixed bag. I think there's also some good motivations in his. So for us, is it wrong to seek signs from God about what to do in a situation? How does God direct you in your life? Well, to answer it succinctly, this story with Gideon laying out the fleeces is not normative. This is not how God has instructed you and taught you how to make decisions. This was unique to his situations. Why is seeking signs problematic? The interpretation is always in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, this happens all the time. Something happens in class, your interpretation is very different than your classmates or your roommates or your parents. They just see it a whole different way. When I am seeking signs and I'm like, oh, look, it's a sign from God or I heard something from God, guess who it passes through? Ben. Ben's the one who authoritatively stamps, this is the will of God. This is his will. This is his word. And the problem with that is a lot of times it directly contradicts what God himself has said. I've heard men say to their daughters, the reason I'm divorcing your mom is I had a dream. God told me to divorce her. 
And she's like, but God says in his word, specifically in Habakkuk, I hate divorce. So which God talked to you? Which God gave you a sign? We can get all, our emotions are all over the map. They're good, but they're crazy. They're here one day and gone the next. Our mood's changed. The things we look to to be omens for us or security for our future change by the day too. It's to build your life on sand to go through life seeking for signs. God has called you to have the mind of Jesus, to be shaped patiently by your father's word and his desires, to move through your life, navigating your decisions, saying, who is my father again? Who am I? Who am I to him? Who is me? Who is he to me? What has he put me here to do? What is his desire in this particular situation? And so the person who asked, Lord, give me a sign if I should break up with this person or get together with that person, move to Atlanta or move to Charlotte, confront my roommate or not, actually has a lot of listening to do of what God has said. Now, how does God direct you through his word? J.I. Packer said, it's kind of like a military general directs his field directors or his field marshals. He doesn't say, take 10 steps this way and then three to the right and then pick up your arms and then do this and then do that and then do that. He says, take the hill. And as you do it, fight honorably and follow the rules of war because we're an honorable people and we're going to do that. We're not going to take advantage of our enemies. Do not retreat. It's just these really broad, that's the general's heart. That's his will. That's his desire. It's left to the field marshal to read the circumstances, to so know his mind and his desire and his vision and his objective that you're able to implement it in that situation. Is it easy? No, it's the fog of war. But that's what you're doing in that moment. You're reading the situation with this increasingly sanctified mind that increasingly knows your God. And you're saying, I think I'm going to go this way because I know this is what he's about. Or this is what he's not about. And so I'm going to avoid that. Because of who God is, you have everything that you need to move forward in faith and to make the decisions that you need to make. Will it be without fear? Absolutely not. Every consequential decision involves fear because you don't know what the outcome is, but you know who is with you in the outcome. And that's what will actually be the only thing that, el- that eliminates anxiety and gives you confidence. Friends, here is the ultimate answer to our seeking of signs is God has given you a sign, singular, the sign. And what he wants to do is to so obsess you and fixate you on the sign that he's given to you, a mark of his favor to you, the proof, the smoking gun, the evidence that he's for you, that he's on your side, that he's pursuing your good, that he's going to come through for you. Is what Paul says in Romans eight thirty-two and beyond. If this father has not spared his own son for you, how will he not also do everything else that you need. If he so loved this rebel world and rebels like you and I, that he gave his son to experience hell, that you might experience him, how will he not also be there for you in all of the lesser, sillier details? I know they don't feel lesser and sillier, but how will he not be there for you in the small things? The proof that God is for you was hanging on a cross and was resurrected from the dead. And that is revealed to you and the picture is painted for you in his word. 
That is what God wants you to look at when you wonder, God, if you really love me, then why is this happening? And you look at that and he says, I do really love you. I do really love you. And listen to me as I reinterpret your circumstances. I want to end with this just illustration. I want you to remember what it was like when we were all little kids. Do you remember what it was like when you were a little kid? I remember whenever I skinned my knees or fell down, I, I had a homing beacon for my mom. And I ran to her, and as soon as I was up in her lap, and she had her arms around me, and I was just wailing, things began to get better. And the way she would call me down is, Ben, Ben, I'm with you. Mommy's here. I'm here. And then that time when... Um, we were in Marietta, my grandparents were in Decatur. I did my first big, brave spend the night out away from home. And at 1 a.m., my grandparents called my parents and they said, Ben ain't going to make it through the night. He's been crying for the past hour. <laughs> and so I hear the voice of my dad in the kitchen. He says, hey, I'm here. I'm here. I'm with you. Or you get your first shot or whatever it was for you. And the simple presence of one you knew was resolutely for you eliminated any thoughts of the future and any worry and it calmed you down even in discipline even in situations like this this holds true even after i've just spanked eli or noah or addy do you know what they want they want me they want reassurance and it this was news to me this caught me off guard that even in tears, even what I thought was going to be anger and cold toward me, they come to me and they get up in my lap. It is my presence with them in these moments that reassures them. Friends, here's the point of this whole thing tonight. Here's the point. When you see how tight you are held by the one who holds your future, you'll be able to loosen your hold on having to know your future. When you know how tightly and warmly you are held by the one who holds your future, you will be able to loosen your hold on having to know your future. And for those of you who without any regret and any repentance are happily living two lives right now and have handed yourself over, he is your only hope too. And you better get clear about who it is who's calling you to repent. Is he calling you unto your death? Or is he calling you to life? He's calling us to life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can say these words. Gideon could say these words, but he couldn't get it into people's hearts. And I can't either. I can't even get it into mine. But you can. And you love to do that. So tonight, please do it again. We pray in your name. Amen.